Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. What's up, everybody? We are back again with Love Extremist Radio. I am here with Trey Borden. He is a placemaker, art producer, and activist based here in our city of angels, Los Angeles. Through his consulting firm, Trey Borden Co., he partners with creative talents to reach communities through public projects, private commissions, and grassroots campaigns. Social justice and progressive advocacy are essential principles to Trey's practice, which is committed to engaging people on the vital social issues of our time. Welcome, Trey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome for you to be here. Awesome for you to be doing this work. I am fully in alignment with the intersection of social justice and art and creativity. And I'm curious to hear how it works. Like, like, like they're, they're, we talk about the arts as like, oh yeah, arts are awesome, right? Like anyone who kind of has a, a liberal mindset or a creative bent in their body recognizes the value of art. And a lot of us also recognize the value of advocacy. But how often do you find art effectively being advocacious? Advocations. Well, I think. I mean, well, I think that in the times we're living in, increasingly. Well, yeah. first of all, thanks for having me again. Oh, yeah. um, I think that when a lot of people think about art, it seems something that's separate from them. Yeah. You know, just to be clear, like my background is not in art. I have an MBA. I kind of got into art really backwards with not a lot of knowledge of how it was used. Right. Uh, I mean, I know kind of from visiting institutions and going to performances, kind of like what typical traditional art is. But I think that. When I started working with artists, I started working with them because they're people who think about people. Mm. They think they think about human problems, and then they, after they think about it for a long time, figure out how to express what they're feeling so that we pay attention to these problems. And so I thought of artists always as problem solvers and kind of thinkers. Uh, besides, I mean, a lot of people think of art as something that's abstract or ornamental. Um, and I didn't know that much about art history, so I just kind of started saying, look, like, you want to say this? Like, let me figure out the best place and the people who can kind of allow you to say that in the biggest, widest way possible. So I think that given that's what art is for, advocacy is a natural extension of that. I think artists are the canaries in the coal mine a lot of the time, telling us what's going on and what we need to be paying attention to and holding people accountable. Um, And I think that they're in a really unique position to do so because a lot of people feel that they're not, um, not that they're apolitical, but that they're not, there's no ulterior motive than the Mm -hmm. truth. Mm. I, you know, and that's not always true, I'm sure. But I think that in terms of the collective consciousness of our culture, artists are the ones who are standing up and saying, like, this is what I believe. This is the truth. And right now, when truth is something that appears to be so subjective to so many, I think that artists have a real role to play in kind of writing this shit. So I'm glad to be involved with this. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great way of phrasing it. Like, 
articulating what is authentic and, and what they see. And there isn't necessarily a system of checks and balances there as there might be in the context of journalism, right? Or other forms of advocacy, you know, getting out in the streets and, and marching and protest, right? Like an artist can often present their work and ideally it's well, you know, shown well and seen by lots of people and they're not necessarily going to face the same level of uh, scrutiny that other advocates uh, uh, activists might find. It de- I think it depends. I mean, I'm separating at this point artists from the art world, right. which I think is also bound by many of the same constraints Absolutely. and biases and um, kind of capitalistic necessities that many of these industries are bound by. I mean, I think that one of the things that's made me interested and kind of successful in this work is that I'm not going through traditional methods to, I mean, I'm not trying to work with galleries. I'm not trying to kind of get in museums. I'm kind of trying to bring art and the vision of an artist to an accessible place, whether that's public or whether it's to, you know, a company space that they uh, are allowed to control or campaigns that reach people directly. I don't think that the art world is immune from any of the things that you described. I think that it's, in fact, a lot of them are reinforcing that. And I think a lot of the artists that I like to work with are also kind of trying to buck that in some way. It's hard because it's hard to make a living as an artist and it's hard to go outside of a system that's so hard to even penetrate uh, to get your success. If you can get a blue chip gallery to represent you, it's really hard to turn something like that down. But I think, you know, just like entertainment, just like finance, just like media, you're seeing a lot of the same hypocrisies play out in the art world that are present everywhere else. So, Well, and disruption, right? Like, I, I think, like, where we've seen music and tech and all of these industries show up that are changing completely and where, like, you needed to be signed to a major label to get your music heard, you know, 20 years ago. Sure. Now we're in a position where it's not like that. I do think the art world and all its accoutrement feels a little bit um, maybe dated and, like, ripe for, you know, opportunities like what sure. you do. Where like artists can find funders and you know and 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 resource to to get their work out through corporate partnerships, through foundations, through government, right? Through through social media. I mean, there's yeah. a, there's artists I know that don't have gallery and they sell directly to their fans and are successful that way. I think that I do that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's great because you're cutting out the middleman who takes fifty percent of your stuff, if not more. Right. Um, and so I think that a lot of artists are getting wise to that. I mean, everything changes slowly, but I think especially when you see that the you know, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but the alignment of values between artists and the institutions that support them. Um, you see what happened at the Whitney um, this year with right. the, the Sacklers. Yeah, well, not just the Sack. The Sacklers are a whole other thing. Oh, that was Guggenheim. Uh, yeah, well, they they represent. They present. They've given money to almost everyone, right? right? So the Sacklers are the oxycotton producing family that um, has now been kind of. People are starting to not accept their money and to kind of with you know rescind their support of this. But I'm talking about the the board member who uh, runs a company that produces tear gas, ah, and it was being used on um, kind of protest migrant protesters on the border. Whoa! And so artists started to protest that you know this is the preeminent liberal fine art institution potentially in all of America yeah. and you know the the Whitney Biennial which is you know also celebrating diversity and progressive values for the most part um, isn't aligned with someone on the board like that and so you know after many many protests and a lot of kind of uh, intransigence from the board member and from the institution he finally resigned but that's just one example of not just kind of the economies of the old way of doing it kind of not being it being right for disruption but also just the Potential to be tainted 
by affiliating with these organizations in some ways, but you know, if yeah. they're if they're resistant to reform, totally. So yeah, lots of opportunity for someone like me who doesn't know kind of what they were doing initially, but has kind of seen the opportunities where um, they weren't as visible before. Would you say that there's an advantage to not knowing? Same seems like. Uh, yeah, I, for me, there yeah, is. I think totally. because I'm good at kind of understanding what the artists would like to achieve uh, and who they'd like to present their work to. And I can also talk to a foundation or a company or a civic leader and say, like, this is what you say you want to do. So here's how these things can work together to be mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's something I've learned to get better at, especially in this kind of sector. But, you know, it's something I think everyone's got to start looking around them and seeing like, who are the unlikely partners? Because a lot of really important things need to get done in the old way, obviously isn't working. Totally. I completely agree with you. I also think there is a certain degree of scrutiny that one can pay into any company, institution, individual, where you will find the darkness, right? Sure. And so ultimately, do you feel like you need to kind of turn a the other way at times when you're working with certain corporate partners for example I don't know maybe it's a drink company and they you know put sugar out into the world in you know doses that are beyond acceptable you know or maybe it's a a government that you know supports certain immigration policy that's not in alignment with your values like how do you kind of mitigate that yeah that's a good question Uh, and we've had to think about that a lot especially going to these corporations and also a lot of the times, no matter how much digging you do, you don't know what someone personally has done, even right. if you can research the company. So sure, sure. it's, you know, people are seeing the ramifications of that now. And so I think that part of it's like, don't choose a partner that's going to actually undermine the project, you know, in terms of like, if you're doing like healthy kids moving, like probably don't get Coca-Cola to sponsor it. You know, that's going to undermine the... Kind even of, though they probably have a campaign that's even though I'm sure they have it. a let's move, you know, probably sponsoring let's move actually. But yeah. I think that like so that's a, you know find the partners who are actually in some way aligned with the goals of the project, you know. Right. Um, but also be transparent. Mm. You know, we had a project in Sacramento that was called Bright Underbelly, and we were doing a seventy thousand square foot mural under the freeway. Partnered mm-hmm. with Caltrans and a lot of community groups to get money. Yeah. Turned out great. Yeah. But you know, when we were over here scrounging for dollars, we were kind of. Like, we need money. And so Walmart said, like, we'd love to kick in some money. And this is, you know, the site of the state's largest farmer's market. It's right by Section 8 Housing. And we had a conversation. We're like, look, like, we're not over here pro-Walmart, but this money is going to somewhere. And we'd rather use it than, like, someone who is going to use it in a much less community-minded way. And there wasn't necessarily, unless you just hate Walmart, there's no kind of conflict of interest with us accepting their kind of community dollars that need to go here. So I think, and, and we said, hey, we accepted this Walmart our money like you know it's not a big deal i think that there are a lot of companies that are trying to figure this out and so part of my role would be to kind of convince them that kind of their ways of doing things are actually not in their best interest and kind of giving them opportunities to show that that willingness to change is real and a lot of that unfortunately is putting money where your mouth is so i think that like that is of a delicate balance, but you have to understand, like you have to basically define your principles and stick to them and tell these companies that to work with you, they have to. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Actually, you bring up Walmart. I also, I've been funded by the Walton family and they're one of mm. the biggest art funders in the country right now. Sure. Um, and yeah, I took a lot of issue with the fact that Walmart was such a huge seller of guns and ammunition in this country. Um, and also have been pleasantly surprised by some of their more recent policies around that and how they're addressing that. So it's interesting to see change happen and what's informing that change and 
um, those those entities that are really interested in supporting the arts kind of digging deeper and asking the important questions of you know, sure. how they're supporting our environment or not. Right? And a lot of these people aren't stupid. You know, they understand the tea leaves just like everyone else does and the kind of willing, the need to change if they're going to kind of continue to be successful or continue to be able to say that they stand for something. I mean, you saw this happen with the NBA right. in China. That was a really fascinating case Whoa, of like, here we have the wokest sports league in America or in the world, presumably, right. and they go to China. One someone says support Hong Kong and all of a sudden they're you know, have this obsequious kind of like statement where they're like, we are so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And they, they took a lot of heat from everyone for right. that because right. here you are capitulating to an authoritarian government. You know, I was East Asian studies in college. Like I know China yeah, and I know how serious it is, it is when they feel affronted. But at the same time, if you are going to cave that easily, then like, how should I feel about your progressive policies here in the U.S.? Totally. So I think a lot of these companies are having to it's a really difficult tightrope for them to walk, and I don't feel bad for them, but, you know, here it's a it reckoning. is. It's a reckoning. Yeah. So we just went deep into some really interesting theoretical and real uh, topics that are facing arts and activism and corporate culture today. I'd love to zoom out into who are you behind that bio that you wrote. <laughs> sure. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I'm a lot of things, right? I'm a, you know, a black person in America, black man. I identify as he, him, his. Thank you for um, I'm gay. Uh, I am looking around at a country that hasn't really been built for me and kind of seeing what my place can be in that. Um, I come from a very loving family. Uh, my parents were married for almost 50 years when my mom passed. My mom passed of cancer actually a couple of years ago, which wow. preceded my move to LA. Um, and so I, you know, I've dealt with loss. I've dealt with an incredible amount of opportunity that um, I think I've earned in part, but also in parts that are like very much based on just other people seeing something in me and supporting me. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what drives a lot of my work is kind of like when people invest a lot in you because they believe in you and they tell you that you are capable of you know, anything that you want, a kind of be careful about choosing what you want and really think about it. There was a long time where I didn't. And I just kind of said, like, whatever looks good kind of is what I should be doing. And that's what's going to make everyone happy and make my friends like not concerned about me. And, you know, it was a really big deal to kind of go into this field because it was very uncharted for me is uncharted for everyone. Yeah. And it wasn't something where I could show up at Yale reunion and be like, yeah, I'm like selling tape earrings in Sacramento on the street. And they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I don't know. But, yeah. you know, so I'm someone who I think has learned to trust their instincts um, and kind of trust that if I dedicate enough of myself to something, it will lead to what I want and just mm -hmm. kind of believing in that and, the proof is in the pudding at this point, but there's been a lot of times in my life where it didn't look sexy. I wasn't on a podcast. I wasn't living in a loft in LA and it wasn't seeming, and it didn't make any money. Right. So I think that I, I would define myself as someone who knows who they are and isn't afraid of kind of sticking my neck out for something I believe at this point, but it mm -hmm. was a journey to get here. You mentioned, um, being a Yale alumnus, um, I've been doing a lot of study around all different things secret societies like Skull and Bones and also learning about Robert Moses and his mm. affiliation with the institution. How do you feel about the power structures of Yale as it aligns with your values? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, they've evolved. I mean, to be, you know, very candid, I loved my experience. You know, I was class president my senior year through our five-year <laughs> reunion. I got along with everybody. I mean, once I came out, I would say that I got to campus and, you know, I, I kind of said, this is my one chance to really meet as many people as I can. I can yeah. learn Chinese anywhere. Yeah. I can't 
meet a group of people at this stage in our lives and like really um, form the kind of relationships that will last me my whole life, you know? Um, and so I really did as many things as I could and I didn't feel especially targeted by homophobia, racism. And when I did, I spoke out about it. There was an incident where I was class president and this dude was driving off of the tailgate and called me a homo in front of everybody. You know, yeah. my friends were in the car with him. They get out. They're like, oh my God, like, you know, we're so embarrassed. And I was just like, the fact that he felt like it was fine, you know, was the part that bothered me. I don't care. I mean, like, yeah. if you call me a faggot or a, a nigger, you're like, you're an idiot. It doesn't really, I mean, it bothers me in the sense that like, you shouldn't be doing that, but it doesn't make me feel like I'm those things, mm -hmm. you know, at least not the way you mean it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I look back on my experience a lot and I, you know, I wrote an editorial and all that stuff. So it's not, a, it, even at that point, it, it wasn't something I considered perfect, but actually a few years afterwards when the protests began there from the students, particularly students of color who were, you know, like we're not getting into this frat party and we're not, wow. you know, like we're the student, this master, which, you know, they've now changed the word master, thankfully, but you know, she was like giving them, there was a controversy around Halloween costumes. And and as yeah. an alumni, I was like, you guys need to fucking get a grip. Like, yeah. there's, like, much more serious things going on in the world. Like, you guys are Yale students, and you're, like, bothered by frats and costumes. And one of my friends, her name is Whitney Sparks, I will say this, she saw that post and was like, you will regret saying this. You sound ignorant, and you sound... To you. To me. She yeah. said this to me. She's like, mark my words, you will regret having this type of opinion, you sound like as out of touch as like these white professors. And I was like, girl, whatever. But then, you know, kind of as the, as it's it snowballed around, and yeah. as I kind of started to revisit my experience there and I realized that like, A, not everyone has your experience. I could have left there having no incident of anything. Doesn't mean that that's not what everyone else experienced besides me. Right. And so like the privilege that even I had in that situation may not ex extend to everyone. My background is not the same. Totally. You know, so I did start to rethink kind of like, why would I go out of my way to denigrate people, you know, fighting against injustice and racism, even if I considered it minor? And it's not minor because it's indicative of, like, right. the entire institution. I was in Calhoun College, which is named after John C. Calhoun, the biggest uh, pro-slavery senator in our history. Um, and, you know, when I was – this was a couple of years ago, a, the dining hall worker, and they're all black because it's New Haven. Right. Kicked, uh, yeah, the yeah, he broke a dining. He was, you know, sweeping the dining hall, cleaning it up every day. And there's slaves carrying cotton in the stained glass of this dining hall. This is something that, like, either I didn't notice or if I noticed it, I'm like, well, Yale's, you know, it's built by slave owners. Like, what are you going to do? But I was not working there, you know. And so one day he broke it out of frustration. This is amidst Ferguson and all this other stuff. And he was arrested for doing this, which caused all types of controversy. And they've now changed the name from Calhoun to Hopper College. So now I'm a Hopper alum. So it is a complicated affiliation. Um, I think that it's hard for these schools that are kind of like they invent privilege and they attract people who want it and they attract a lot of people of color who are very aspirational in their outlook. And it is a weird thing to wrestle with. You know, I didn't go to Howard. My parents met at Howard and I thought about mm -hmm. doing that, but it seemed like, you know, just something I wanted to experience. And I think that a lot of us as alums are dealing with like, is the, is the benefit worth the kind of protecting the prestige of this institution? So now mm -hmm. I've become much more critical of everything they're doing that's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But there are also places where they can have a lot of impact if they start to do it right. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but no, that's an honest, you know, kind of, a, 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 that's where I'm at at this point.
Was there a lot of interaction between local New Havenites and and you as the student body and, and when you were there? Well, I mean, like, it's a bubble. I mean, Yale mm-hmm. was con- a lot of people, you know, Yale was considered, like, the place that was in the most dangerous place. Right. You know, it's, like, right, Princeton right. and Cambridge and Ithaca. It's, like, these are not places full of struggle. Mm-hmm. But New Haven is. And mm-hmm. so there's kind of a Yale bubble. And then you have an incredibly black, impoverished uh, population immediately around the school. Yeah. So I was, you know, very involved with community service. So I encountered this a lot. But it is kind of a, I mean, one interesting fact is, like, black students wouldn't leave campus without wearing a Yale hoodie. Just so you would not be confused. Wow by police or anyone else or another student mm-hmm. as a, you know, resident of New Haven. I mean, I had the police calling me by students thinking I was a New Haven resident as opposed to a student. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that whole dynamic is so problematic. It's a lot. Yeah. I, don't I, know that I went changed. to a school in a similar environment at Penn in West mm. Philadelphia, which was... My dad's from... Uh, my dad went to Overbrook. He's from West Philly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic I saw play out as well. Um, it's also interesting because now as an artist coming into this um, conversation that we were having earlier, I feel like I'm able to play on in multiple sandboxes. There's the sandbox of the artist selling earrings on the street, and then there's the sandbox of the artist pitching a Fortune 500 company to do a sculpture in their plaza, right? And there feels like you kind of need to be able to speak a different, like, code switch a little bit, mm. and to be able to kind of be this Trojan horse to step into traditional patriarchal business in capitalist structures so as to enact change from within. Do you feel like that means you kind of have to, um, I guess we kind of already spoke to it, but do you feel like a Trojan horse? Do you feel like you're like tricking people or do you feel like it's like pretty straight up? Like, I, I don't believe in tricking people because I think that like for this change to last, that they actually do have to be mutually beneficial mm. um, arrangements. Mm-hmm. And so I'm as upfront with the artist about what we need to do and kind of how we can enact this vision as I am with the potential sponsors or supporters or permit issuers. Because I mean... If I'm over here, it's just like, gotcha, you know, yeah. that's that's a burn bridge and that's a relationship that can't grow. Fair enough, yeah. So I don't really pursue things where I think I'd have to mislead someone to get it done. Because that, you know, it's it. I try to act with integrity as much as I can. I mean, always. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's perfect, but I think that knowingly I would never do that. Just because they need to understand that it, it, if it doesn't work for them, then either they need to change their model or I need to present them a different opportunity. So That's interesting. I guess I I think of it more in the context of needing to um, use different language so as to get buy-in. Oh, yeah. Well, I definitely like a bamboozle. I mean, I definitely, yeah, yeah. I definitely (laughs) like to, because some people like you, I mean, I'm very good at pitching a vision and kind of getting people's buy-in, even though like neither of us have any idea what that's really going to look like. I pitch things all the time and they, they always go well, but it's, you know, you you're like, we should see this happen. But you don't know how that's actually going to happen. We did this project called Beacon where we got the endowment to give us 50 grand and some others to basically take over an old bank and turn it into a TV. So we had like a six high-power projectors inside the building that screened onto six channels in the windows. And when we pitched it, we literally had no idea how we were going to do that. We had to hire an engineer and like do all this crazy stuff. But if you can get them on board with your vision, then like, everyone's on board now for like all the bumps in the road to get that done. Mm -hmm. So I think as long as like, again, transparency, I'm not going to say like, I've done this a million times. There's no sweat. I'll be like, this has never been done before. Let's do it together. Mm. And I think if you approach it like that, where they're bought into the vision and they're also bought into seeing it through, that's the best way to do it. 
Yeah, I like that approach. Yeah, and 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 getting that kind of excitement of collaboration there. So we're here on Love Extremist Radio. What is love? <laughs> I thought a lot about this actually because I think that there's you know I went to Jesuit high school and so they oh, you know wow. talk about agape yeah. like you know total acceptance and I I don't know I feel like a I don't think that like you have to love everything mm-hmm. you know but I think that for things that you do choose to love it really is about kind of meeting things and people where they are and kind of, well, I would say getting to know something truly, you know, like if you're my friend and I've taken the time to, to get to know you and I love you, I know who you are. I know like what you're capable of. I know deep down what your values are and I'm not trying to change you. I'm accepting you. I love you. And I want, and I want to see you stay as true to that as possible. So I think that like loving is not just saying you can do whatever it's saying like the you I know I love and I'm going to try and support you to stay as true to that as you can. Everyone develops and changes over time, but that's also part of knowing yourself, you know, kind of knowing the things that you're working on. Um, But I think that in the past, like I've had an opinion that like loving someone's like getting them from A to B, you know, however you do it, you know, like how a parent would feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of parents are having to rethink kind of like, what does it mean to love a child? It's not necessarily just like, hitting them and berating them until they do what you say. It's more about understanding your child and understanding what support they need to be the fullest version of them. And I think that that's kind of my idea of love now. So ultimately, and I, I think this often comes back to um, a definition that I reference via Bell Hooks and that she references via Eric Fromm, which is really rooted in this sense of loving what is ultimately whether it's with another individual or with the world, and it's kind of being an acceptance of what is true, Mm -hmm. at least in your context. And there's also the duality of the potential for future. Sure. And for growth, right? And like you said about getting a corporate, you know, partner in, it's like, we could do this together. We don't know what it's going to be like, but imagine this beautiful vision, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's ultimately this kind of duality of the current love, that we experience that is, I see you, I recognize you're a human or you're an animal or, you know, you're a beautiful community. landscape, you're a community. Exactly. Um, I'll get to talk to Agape and, and you, you are doing great things for the world. And I, I honor and love that and, and, and you for that. And I see how much more is, is possible. And I see this vacant building in this community and I say, oh man, what if we, you know, did this and like brought our love into that? And so I think there is that kind of like, I don't know if it's polar, but like duality in love, which is present and future. I don't really get into past as much with it, but I do think like there is something really beautiful about recognizing those two frames. Well, past is useful in that it gives you context for how someone got to where they are. You know, sometimes when you learn more... You're like, I see a little mm. bit more why this is what we're dealing with and this is who you are. So I think that I wouldn't judge anyone for their past, but it can inform how you can accept them for their Absolutely. present. That's a great point. And like me sharing my health journey is a, a point of vulnerability that allows others to open up as well. Sure. And it's really, you know, also giving people a chance to like know kind of what your journey is and kind of understand why you want to do the things you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like... In terms of growth, yes. I think that with love, we can grow and build great things that still hew closely or, or maybe totally with 
who you are or what you are as a community or kind of what this natural, I mean, your example, like a natural landscape, like there can be ways to kind of prepare it more for the future, but you're not going to like radically change it if you love it. Mm -hmm. If I see a super fun site, I don't love that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to want to change it as radically as possible into something I can love. So, and that's, I, I think that like, especially in terms of, you know, kind of romantic relationships of the past, like where I thought that, by way of expressing love was to kind of only see the potential, you know? Yeah. I'm living in a dream. And then like, I'm like, this is a great starter right here and I can just create, you know, this is something we can build on. Right. But that's not, that's not love. A that's like your ego. Yeah. And that's kind of you also lying to yourself about what you're dealing with. You know, if I would never want someone to come up to me and be like, Trey, you're, you know, this is a great start, but like, here's where I see you going in order for me to really love you. I'd be like, get the hell out of my face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's not love. That's like you, I mean, that's your own journey that you're on that you're trying to get me involved with. So right, right. I think that now I'm like to love is to kind of take people where they are, take things where they are and then grow from there, mm-hmm. not take people where they could be and then chastise them for not getting there quick enough. Right. So I'm going to parlay this into a topic that you brought up over email that I think is really interesting, which is if we are in truth about our current social and economic climate as is, we're recognizing the widening gap between those who have and don't. And those who don't are also like starting to mm, disconnect, right? And recognize, and we spoke a little bit about like the lack of equity in those who are disenfranchised in our society today. Um, and I'm curious to hear how you perceive that from a place of love, but also, um, you know, where where you're coming in contact with that, like those who, who might not have a voice or who are being kind of shut out um, and how that's starting to like bring tension into our culture um, or not. What, yeah, well, what I would say it's, I mean, I say the tension's been there. Right. You know, I think that what we see happening is, you know, peeling back of the facade of like, we're all in this together or like, mm. we're all this country or like, we're all post-racial or whatever you've been lying to yourself about. I mean, you know, I hate to say his name, but like, I think that this presidency, what it's revealed is the truth in some ways about kind of what's been happening. I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, some people would say the truth about who we are. I don't know if it's doing that. Cause I think that most people are most people are decent, kind of just want to live a life where they're unbothered by people and don't want to really step on anyone else. And they just want to see, you know, some level of prosperousness for them and their families. You know, I hoped that I hope I don't see why else you'd want to have another agenda than that. Um, And so I think that what this has been revealing recently is that people have been pitted against each other. Um, and it's now, it's kind of stolen this sense of abundance, mm-hmm. you know? Some people have more abundance than they deserve, for mm-hmm. sure, and they think that they're entitled to it. Uh, and then some people have been just so used to having nothing that they, they don't, they, only when it becomes this extreme are they starting to question the entire system that they're in. So mm-hmm. I think that this is a really important opportunity to kind of establish common ground. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's just a very difficult time to be in this space because the people that need the most resources have the least access to them, obviously. And that's always been the case. But they're also more and more aware of the fact that this discrepancy exists and are demanding things that they should have demanded 
you know, well, maybe not should have. That seems judgmental, but that they could have demanded justifiably decades and generations ago. Right. So all of these fights that have been accumulating over generations since, like, you know, 16, 19, if not before, right. if you're Native American, even before, yeah. um, are coming to roost now. And so I think that at the same time we need unity and we need solidarity, we are also fighting against forces that are tearing people up way more efficiently than before. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, so it's like, how do you look at that with love or look at that with optimism? I think that, you know, you kind of look at where, what, what resources do we really have? And are those things being maximized? Mm. I think a lot of people don't realize what they're sitting on. You know, even if you don't have any money, like you, I mean, I had this conversation with someone I was driving to meet a friend who lives like way up in the Beverly, like way up in hills of Bel Air, Beverly, one of those anonymous places that you're just like, how can anyone even want to live here? Because you, it's like the kind of place where I feel like if you had a car breakdown Mm -hmm. and your phone was dead, like nobody would help you. You You wouldn't (laughs) even reach the door. Right. You know what I'm saying? Where if I'm in Boyle Heights or somewhere in Sacramento where people are used to struggling, like anything happens to you, like people are coming and pitching in because they get it. There's empathy there. Right. And so I think that that sense of community that's really present in these kind of neighborhoods and families and communities where like there isn't a lot of superficial abundance, there is a lot of abundance of other things. And so Mm -hmm. I think that part of what artists are able to do um, as advocates and as people who kind of inspire is kind of recognize the resources that you have and how those can be better leveraged. And that's kind of the space I'm in in terms of how to address inequity. On top of that, using the privileges that I have and you have and other people who actually have greater access to decision makers is getting in their face and saying like these policies aren't working. Right. It's interesting to think about just how we've just framed love in kind of like past, present, future. Um, And I think like there's almost like three steps to getting out of the mess of um, disconnection or... um, some would say the myth of individuality Mm. in that we are all living this human experience. And ultimately if we go into our past, we can find moments of vulnerability and trauma inevitably. And we can all align and find alignment in that, right? When we get into whether it's disease or an economic difficulty or loss of someone, whatever it is, we all can like, find mutual emotional connection in our historic vulnerabilities, which brings us to our present conundrum of inequalities, even though emotionally we all pretty much have similar experiences Uh as human beings, you know, or if we're we're all in this plane ride of life. It's all relative, but yeah. Yes. We're all in this plane ride of life. Sure. People who are highly privileged probably don't experience the same degree of trauma that those who aren't might experience in their regular life. Well, it's not like trauma from resource deprivation. Right. You know, it's trauma from, like, the type of things that can affect anyone. Right. So I guess, I, I don't know, this is coming to me as we speak, but I guess I'm thinking just, like, maybe there's, like, a like almost, like, a step-by-step process where it's, like, step one is recognizing the vulnerability and trauma we all share. Step two is getting to the current moment of reality where we're not equal and you know not even close and there is inequity and there isn't justice here and there's systems that have kept it that way for years and you know centuries Uh. and then how do we envision a future coming from where we are now right and recognizing the truth and where we are now and i think we're having this grand reckoning of where are we now and what is true and a lot of people have different opinions about that and, and different perspectives about like well here's my truth 
and here's my truth, and this is what's true for me. Uh-huh. And ultimately, I think we're forgetting the first step, which is like, yeah, we're all human. We sure. all have trauma. Well, we that a lot of people don't believe that. I swear. I mean, like you know, when you get down to the brass tacks, and a lot of people are not treating others like they're human. I mean, the sure. way that we're. I mean, this rhetoric around immigrants, which is the same rhetoric around you know, black people and gay people and trans people and everyone else. I mean, this is not that that foundational agreement has yet to be reached in a real way. I think intellectually people can say like that is literally a human being. But, you know, that has to be borne out by treatment Mm -hmm. and you have to act on that. And I don't think that we've even reached that point. I don't even think we've agreed upon what got us here. You know, and I think that that's a really in order to reckon with the present, you have to reckon with the past, you know. Right. And we're not I was in Australia. And if you've been there Mm -hmm. in Vinton. Oh, yeah. You used to live in Sydney. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've seen this where like before an official gathering, someone will get up and say, like, before we do anything, we're going to acknowledge the land that we sit on belongs to whatever Aboriginal people are affiliated with that site. And then they kind of honor them and have the moment. Then they move on and do nothing. Right. But like at the very least. I mean, not nothing, but like at the very least, there's an acknowledgement of like the fuckery that took place here. You know, we don't I mean, I can't imagine an American politician, even Obama, I can't imagine. I don't remember a time where he got up in front of a bunch of Americans and was like, first things first, let's acknowledge all the raping and pillaging and genocide we've committed to these Native Americans on this site. Let's have a moment. Let's say, you know, sorry. All right. What were we talking about? Like that alone, I think, would be so inflammatory to so many people here in America that it's hard to imagine it even being a part of like normal operations, you know? So I think that like that's just an indicator that we have so long to go before we even go back into the past to say what really happened that brought us here. Because then we could say, all right, now we know where we are and now we know what got us here. Now, how can we craft a vision for the future that everyone can have a better win? So do you think that's shame? What do you think it is that, that like puts people in such deep denial around the reality of our history? Because they have to reckon with themselves. I think it really does come down to your self-concept. You know, if I'm a white person and I've never looked inward about privilege or I've never kind of like looked inward about kind of how my family or me got to where I am um, relative to other people in this country and all of a sudden I'm confronted with like my ancestors and slavery and redlining and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it can be very overwhelming if that's something you shut out or that no, or that, or even worse than shut out. People have like your whole life told you to ignore and discredit that it's a real reckoning individually. And I think that people, it's hard to get real with yourself. It's the hardest thing there is. So I think that asking people to do it, like it's just like flipping a switch, is very naive. So I think that people have to not be forced into it. People have to see that doing so will lead to a better reality for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and then that goes back to like what you're telling these corporations. It's not saying like, stop selling cola. Right. It's like, hey guys, like if you want to create this world you say you want, like here's a better way to do it that will actually benefit you more in the long term. And I think that's what's getting lost. It's like there's so much pent up frustration and blame, very justifiable frustration and blame. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, there's like a, a huge lack of, you know, acceptance of responsibility from right. the other side that like people don't even trust one another enough to kind of come together and say like, what can we create now? Well, there's yeah. also a huge amount of power that wants to maintain the status quo. Right? Oh, man. These guys will burn the world before they let us have it, right. you know? Right. I mean, truly, literally, I think that, like, these old rich people, not all of them, but enough of them to control enough that they would rather see Australia burn to the ground in a coal mine than, than change one minute of their life 
in a way that would benefit others. And that's like such a depressing thing to grapple with. It's like they actually, it's like y'all are acting like you're not grandparents and great grandparents. Like, I don't understand how you want to leave a world behind that like has no water or air in it. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me. That's the part that is hard for me because I'm like, I don't even see how you feel like this is better for you unless you're just like the most self-absorbed, self-interested, greedy person. And they they would never say that they're that. So I don't know what we do about that. I mean, I'm still working my way into figuring out that. Well, it seems like in some ways this presidency has become a reckoning in terms of starting to illuminate and shed light on that toxicity in our culture and in our world. Um, We have a great poster child. Couldn't be better. You know, and that's actually kind of... Good. Like, there's no redeeming or kind of like, it's like this is almost a caricature of the worst tendencies we have, and we have it in the worst position possible for all to see. I mean, I hate what's happening, but I also have to say, like, couldn't be a better case for change. Yep. Yep. And in in that through line, another topic that you brought up that was really interesting and powerful is the concept of alchemy. Mm. And I think this is an appropriate time to bring it in the conversation. How how do you define alchemy? So I mean, alchemy is like a kind of a mystical process of turning things into gold. But the way that you know I was defining it with a friend is that you know the ability to take the worst thing you can imagine, like you mm. know, like a like cancer, for right. instance, or um, years and generations of racial oppression, or you know, whatever your kind of like shitty circumstance in life is, and actually transforming that into something that can actually empower you, propel you mm-hmm. and create opportunities that wouldn't be there otherwise. You know, I mean, one thing about this presidency is it's kicked up all this, you know, dust everywhere and you're kind of fully seeing what the reality is and ideas and concepts that would never be considered seriously are now on the table because of the stakes that mm. are so so easily easily visible now. And so I think that if you're able to look into the darkness and find something of value or transform it into something of value for yourself, then you will be, your potential will be limitless because, you know, I was telling you yesterday, it's like, if you can turn shit into gold, you'll be the richest person because ain't nothing but shit. <laughs> and it's like increasing every minute. And so I think that are that's... Are there examples of that that you see in your... Well, like, I mean, like... Artists I, you've worked with that you think are doing that? Well, I mean, I think that like in terms of artists who are using their work for advocacy, you know, I think that people are just... The complacency that existed before has diminished substantially. Mm -hmm. So getting people engaged with your art or getting people engaged with hitting these streets, it's like never been a better time to be about something real because people are just so thirsty and hungry for that at the moment. I mean, an easy example is like black people's sense of humor. You know, like imagine all the shit we done been through, you know, and like, <laughs> like the best way to cope was to get weak, you know, and like, if, like, that's why black people are so hilarious, because like, we've had to be to like, imagine like the jokes that were cracked in the cotton fields, you know, right. I can only imagine because that is like, the only way to survive, you know, that and I guess for some people faith, but like, yeah. that's the type of alchemy I mean, we're like, we are literally slaves picking cotton for this ignorant white man. And right. yet let's get weak a little bit. Right. Like that is the type of kind of survival instinct and resilience that I think alchemy makes possible. But in this context, it's like, look at all the partners you could get to support projects that like 15, 10, seven years ago would have been like, we're not spending money to like pay for you to have a bunch of quotes on flags for pride. Like we don't right. need all that. But now people are like, we actually do need that mm. and we'll support it. So yeah. that's, taking these horrible times in some ways and using it to 
present solutions and partnerships that would never be possible. And I don't mean just corporate partnerships. I mean, you know, I was on the board of the LGBT center in Sacramento and I, you know, and we've started to do this or they have now like gay people are undocumented. They're Muslim, they're black, they're Mm -hmm. trans, they're women, they're Asian, they're international. Like we permeate all different groups. Mm -hmm. So we can now be a hub for all these different spokes that have always been hostile toward us. Like, mm-hmm. cause the black struggle and the LGBT struggle and the women's struggle and the undocumented struggle, and the Muslim mm-hmm. struggle, like whatever struggle you can imagine, like it's the same struggle, not being treated like humans. Mm-hmm. So if we can actually leverage this moment of desperation and panic to actually build these bridges between us, like that's something that would have taken years and years and years to do if everything was fine. Mm -hmm. Because people would have been comfortable in their little silo and being like, we we hate those people, right? It's like, actually we're all under such threat that like we need to work together. So I think the opportunity for that type of solidarity, which is the only way that you can combat things that are this systemic and that have so much momentum, um, it's an exciting thing to think about. Well, I just want to actually articulate that the it is in service to white supremacist patriarchy to have infighting amongst oppressed groups. Absolutely. So it's really important to recognize that whenever there's this um, you know competitive whatever energy um, amongst your oppression um, and and groups that that are facing oppression or not being humanized, um, ultimately that infighting is only keeping people from um, being able to address the the root issue. Yeah, I mean, for some poor coal miner in West Virginia to be talking about an immigrant from Mexico or a black person, it's like, dude, like you are truly tripping. If you think right. that that's the reason your lot in life is what it is, like you need to look at your senator. You know, <laughs> you need to look at this like coal mining right. executive that you just allowed to like completely pillage your entire state and then send whatever jobs they needed to China. Right. You know, it's just like this is a time where I think they, the people that are kind of institutionalizing this oppression, they know that better than anybody. Mm-hmm. So they've spent, you know, God knows how many man hours and trillions of dollars to keep this thing from blowing up but it's like it's inevitable you know because not enough people are that i don't know unless you just are trying to make people as dumb as possible which i generally don't think will work ultimately no no it's i we're we're moving in a direction and it's not going to stop i think there's just a lot of fear and power grabbing and it's almost like the death clutches of the patriarchy are gonna are gonna really bring about some you know are bringing about some really challenging outcomes and ultimately those generations are dying off, and so are their traditions. Are they, though? It's like, why are we? Why Tony Morrison die? We got Dick Cheney with nine hearts, you know? It's just like a really... I thought about that. I'm like, I don't even know, like, what is happening in terms of the... Because the, I think that they're also... Like, for instance, like, you know, I'm not, how old are you? 35. Yeah, I'm 35 as well. Cool. Um, but we are, like, enough, like, you know, especially, like, we went to the schools we went to and all of that where... And you look at your friend group from college, enough of us are invested in the old way and are benefiting that like they don't necessarily want to flip the table over at the moment, you know? And then it's like you have like the very young kids who are seeing the the world for what it is. And like, you know, if I was a 13 year old right now, I'd be horrified by like what was coming towards me, you know? Mm-hmm. So they have zero investment in keeping it the way it is. I think we're kind of like... This bridge, it's like, we understand how necessary Free change internet, is, but like, we also have like the ears of like our 55, 60 year old bosses or professors or colleagues or parents. And 
it's our job not to see because the reason I'm saying this is like who's gonna who's gonna suffer the brunt of this change, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's gonna have to be. I mean, ultimately, it's the youth because they have to live with what happens, you know. Which is why I think the fact that like a small group of you know whiter older people are you know dictating policies around the globe that they don't have to suffer under is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that notwithstanding, I think that we just have to be a little bit willing to put our necks on the line because we have the buy-in of the people who are needing, who have all the resources. Mm-hmm. And we also owe it to the people that we're hearing from the next generation that like it, they won't survive without change. Right. Yeah. No, it's so important. I mean, I do look to younger generations and feel this like feeling of hope and optimism and also recognize like, yes, as those who straddle kind of the, I, I would consider it like pre-internet, post-internet era. Mm-hmm. Played outside. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Played outside and like also like are experiencing this grand awakening at this time. Um, yeah, there is a responsibility we hold to wake up. And yeah, it's also frustrating to see at my peers, um, you know, many of them who might present like me, who are not talking about these issues or recognizing like the requirement for intersectionality in their practice and in their life. Life to dismantle systems that have been holding them and everyone else back for sure and for many of those people it's not even making them that happy right you know i have friends where i look at them and i'm like every box has been checked that resume is platinum right but you know are you i mean and and you're smart you're too smart to think that that's all that matters exactly you know so it's like it's almost like you know what trap you've trapped yourself in and so i think that you know, allowing people the opportunity to kind of like creatively consider that without judgment, you know, Mm. and it's hard not to when you see the stakes, especially like, you know, when I see some of my friends, it's like hard for me not to be like, do you understand what you're contributing to? But it's also kind of like, that's not useful. That's also not love to get back to that. Mm. Love is to say like, I know what you care about and what you want this world to be. Like, where's your place in that? And like, how can we create opportunities and entry points for you to kind of like make some shifts happen because if a lot of people change a little that is great Mm -hmm. i mean that might be uh, almost too too optimistic to hope for reality where like a mass incremental change happens you know Mm -hmm. because like that would mean a lot i think people are also under such desperate circumstances that incremental is really not good enough you have to radically change as soon as possible so I think that all approaches need to be pre- present in this mm-hmm. struggle. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the word that keeps coming up to me for this year and beyond is liberation. Mm-hmm. And liberation, I recognize, is both personal and collective. And one doesn't happen without the other, right? Sure. So that's the beauty of that word is like, if I feel personally liberated because I'm no longer the CEO of the business I started and I'm you know, doing art every day and living my best life and in this great relationship and paying the bills, you know, and just feeling like I, you know, am living great, that's all awesome. But ultimately, if my neighbor is struggling and if there's people down in the river that are living down there and have to evacuate every time a rainstorm comes and aren't comfortable and are, you know, struggling with you know, having been kicked at, forced out of their homes and their jobs and, and, you know, because of the rising cost of living in LA, it's like, well, are they free? Right. And like, Mm -hmm. am I able to actually like enjoy this sense of liberation if I'm riding my bike by those folks and they're like, no, like this isn't working for us. Yeah. I mean, like I live in downtown Los Angeles and, you know, like I actually wanted to live in a place where you couldn't really hide from what was really happening. I mean, Mm -hmm. I also didn't want to have a car, but I also am like, 
what I do is working with artists to like alleviate some kind of social pressures. And so I think that hiding from it in another neighborhood is not really well aligned, but you know, I'll be going to some fancy gala in my tux and I'll be stepping over some mattress and three people. And I'm like, this is no way mm-hmm. to live. And I don't even know what people who have like much, much, much more must be feeling. They must have to isolate themselves from this entirely, from mm-hmm. the entire world. And you see that happening. Right. Where like they don't even see. I mean, I don't know how you live in San Francisco. Right. You know, I mean, L.A. is bad. But when I was there, I got off at 16th Street in Mission and I was like knowing how expensive this is. The things that you see on these streets. I'm mm-hmm. just like the Well the tensions are high in San Fran. Come on. You can't should, park your car in be. San Francisco. You yeah. can't park your car there. Honestly. Like your, your window's gonna get smashed in five minutes. Like, yeah, well I mean soon it's gonna be more things being smashed, you know, because right. I just think that people have a breaking point when they don't feel like people are being treated like human beings. Like what are you what's your investment in keeping things the way they are at all? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess unless your literal life is at stake. But I mean for a lot of people their life is is at stake or or nearly at stake. And you talk about a recession coming that let's say the homeless population jumps 15 or 20% even, which is not huge. I mean, you're talking about, I don't even know what that looks like and I don't want to get there, you know? So over a hundred grand in LA. So, so it's just, it's scary, but I think that like there's more people like us changing their lives to accommodate this era and kind of shedding the things that didn't work before. And I think, you know, not everyone gets there at the same time. Like it wasn't until I moved back home in 08 that I kind of began this journey to kind of like reassess who I was and Mm -hmm. going back home was awesome. You know, sometimes you need home to get grounded and like be holding yourself accountable and give yourself space to really figure out like what you can do with your life that means something. I feel Um, you. I totally feel that. Let's get into practical. You know, okay. like we've, we've been articulating some challenges and some, some realities of our time, but like, what do you do on a daily basis to keep yourself whole? To keep myself whole? Keep yourself loving, keep yourself joyful. Well, that's something, it's, it's a good time. I went on this retreat over New Year's, kind of anticipating that this is the year for kind of really embracing myself in that way, like taking care of myself. Yeah. Um, I, I, gone vegan this month just as a way of exploring yeah. kind of like what Did would Phil challenge you on that no phil has challenged me many times he challenged me for a week i'm sure but yeah. i actually challenge myself with this because like i love to cook and i like to have people over and i like to explore new things and i feel like it does all of that stuff for me it's like i do care about my environmental impact i do mm-hmm. like to kind of experience new ways of living that are maybe better for me than the way i've been living yep. um so i've been exploring that i think that kind of this year I, i'm really trying to I mean, define grounded however you want, but for me, that means kind of exploring the things that got me here. Mm. So it's like, I've not been reading books. Like, how about rereading the books I used to read that actually made me love reading in the first place? I used to play the bassoon. I'm now doing that, you know? I'm like building towards the nerdiest thing ever, recital for myself. You know, I'm kind of rediscovering (laughs) me in the ways that like, I think developed me into the person I'm proud of and like really owning those things. Um, that's something I'm trying to do on a daily basis. Um, that's beautiful. I think recognizing and like having gratitude, which sounds like, I feel like I've literally become like the LA stereotype in like one year. Own it, bro. But I am. Cause I think that it actually allows you to explore parts of yourself that need to be dusted off and cultivated. Yeah. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. I think that staying connected to people is the big thing I do most. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I have a really vibrant and wonderful array of people around me that are really, 
um, worthy of my admiration and respect and who hold me accountable. And I think that what I do on a daily basis is to make sure those people know they're appreciated and also just staying connected. You don't know what's going to happen. So having your community on the same page and ready to motivate and mobilize around whatever, whether it's an amazing opportunity, you need all hands on deck to execute or something where you're like, we got to fight this thing tooth and nail or else it's going to destroy what we really care about. You know, mm-hmm. so I think this is the year to solidify those bombs if you haven't or strengthen them if you have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I'm really focusing on. That's beautiful. Yeah. Building together. It's interesting. I was talking to my friend Erica last week about just my people, right? And recognizing who your people are. And ultimately, I think the goal is we all become each other's people, right? Mm-hmm. But in the interim, recognizing, okay, like who's kind of gone through or recognizes like you know, it's up to up to pace, it's yeah. up to speed in terms of where we're at right now and like what we need to be doing in order to um, help support others and, and, and really be a light for people to, to do their work and to progress. And support yourself. I think that's something else that I'm, I've been trying to pay more attention to. It's like, yeah. especially if you're doing work that you think is vital to supporting people who don't have much, like sometimes you're just pouring your cup all over the place and there's nothing left for you. And that's totally my last year, just like going everywhere, being everything. uh, And it's exhausting. And Mm -hmm. so I think, and it's, you know, exhausting financially, spiritually, physically, all the things. So I think that I'm in general, my daily practices now is like, is this for me? Mm -hmm. Like, is it, am I going to be able to give a hundred percent to this? Because Mm -hmm. if not, I'd rather just shrink and kind of quality over quantity. I really appreciate you articulating that just to double click like boundaries are an incredible practice of self-love and Mm -hmm. recognizing in your gut what feels good to be doing in any given day and what doesn't who feels good to be spending time with and who doesn't what job is right for you and what's not is ultimately setting boundaries that are incredibly important for your health. And for your joy and your love, right? Mm -hmm. And your mentality. Like, you know, it's so stressful to be in a situation that you're doing for reasons other than you want to. Right. And sometimes there's a good reason, but often there's not. Right. Well, and I also recognize in speaking to that, um, there is a brain that is better than the one in your head, which is generally in your gut. And for most of my life, I um, basically muted that brain with food and always feeling full or just like kind of consuming. Um, And I think a lot of us use food as a way to kind of almost numb out whether, you know, some people use other substances or, or whatever, but recognizing our habits so that like, can you actually tap into your gut to get a sense of whether something feels good or not? Um, and if you can't, how can you get to a place where you have a, a healthy relationship between your brain and your gut? I think that's actually something that has been instrumental for me over the last two and a half years as I've healed this cancer. And um, I can't recommend enough. Uh, so just think about that as we talk about it. Sure. Um, so how do we find you? Um, let's see. I guess... Uh, what. Well, should I get my email on this? Yeah, I mean whatever uh, you want. I mean, the if you if you, if you have a great idea, you or you if you think I'm someone that you might want to work with, or let me know something cool that I can spotlight. Um, Trey at TreyBorden.com. My website's TreyBorden.com. Um, T R E B O R D E N. On Instagram, I'm just Trey Borden. Like my business card is like my name is Trey Borden. Find me at TreyBorden.com at TreyBorden. TreyBorden. You know, <laughs> so hopefully you heard one of those. Um, nice. 
I'm around LA. I mean, this is a year where I, I finally have moved to a new city and I plan to embrace it. I mean, I left behind. I mean, I've expanded to a city where I don't have nearly the footprint that I did in my hometown. And I'm still very active there, but I want to make a difference of what's happening here. You know, that's why you move oh, to yeah. a city is to be, to leave your kind of handprint on it, but like hold hands with all the people who are already doing stuff. I'm not trying to replicate. I'm trying to kind of add what I can to things that are already moving. This place is really exciting, but there's a lot of things that need to also be starting to happen so welcome hopefully i'm part of that thank you yeah thank you for I, this I, I i'm really excited that we're connecting having this conversation especially because i i am just inspired and want to want to help you on that mission for sure there's a lot to do yeah there is um radical so take us out what's your favorite love song oh my god my favorite love song maybe you're all i need okay maybe the mary j blige method man version though i don't know Ooh. I think that that's pretty, yeah, I think I can get down to that most of the time. Either either <laughs> version, yeah. That was really split second, because I had not thought about that at all. Yeah, dude. It usually hits people. That, that puts put you on the spot there. But Trey Borden, this has been a joy. Uh, lots of deep, important conversations we're having, and many more to have. Um, but thank you for being on Love Extremist Radio today. Uh, thank you all for listening. Definitely check Trey out and email him if you've got an idea. As he said, um, please rate this podcast if you love it in iTunes and share it with your homies. Have a beautiful week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Just, uh, just enough to make a hard rock smile. To this day, boo, no frontin'. Even when the skies were gray, you would rub me on my back and say, Maybe it'll be okay. Now that's real to a brother like me, baby. Never ever get my cootie away and keep it tight, alright? And I'ma walk these doors so we can live in a fat ass crib with thousands of kids. Well, like, you don't need a ring to be my wife. Just be there for me and I'ma make sure we be living in the effing lap of luxury. I'm realizing that you didn't have to fuck with me, but you did. Now I'm going all out, kid. And I got mad love to give you, my nigga.
Plus I love the fact you got a mind of your own No need to shop around, you got the good stuff at home Even if I'm locked up north, you in the world Rocking three-fourths of cloth, never showing your stuff or crew It be true, me for you, that's how it is I be your Noah, you be my words, I'm your mister You my missus, with hugs and kisses Valentine cards and birthday wishes, please Another level of planning, of understanding The bond between man and woman and child The highest elevation, cause we above All that romance crap, just show your love Yeah.